Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. In Mark 8.36, Jesus poses this question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are uh, we're so grateful for your word. It is such a gift that you have spoken that we can know you, that we can understand ourselves, that we can know what to believe and how to behave, Lord, that you have uncovered some mysteries for us in your word. We're so happy, Lord, that you have given us your spirit and your word that we might know the truth. We pray that today that you would help us to know the truth and to be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Who here knows the name Robert Johnson? Okay, a few of you. Not Bob Johnson, like your, like your co-worker. Like Robert, born 1911, Robert Johnson, born 1911. Robert Johnson, um, considered maybe the most famous and influential blue, uh, blues musician of all time. Robert Johnson, uh, born in 1911 in Mississippi, and as a young man, he loved music. And uh, especially as he was going through school, he started learning about music, and he, he loved music, and he wanted to be a musician. He wanted to be a great musician, and turns out, he was not. He was not. He was mediocre at best. On his best day, he was, in general, not so great. Um, but that was his longing. That was his desire. That's what he was working at. And at some point in his life, early on, very young, he... Uh, there's a, there's a record of him just kind of disappearing. And he did this, by the way, for some time. He, uh, you can read, uh, when you read biographies on this guy, um, even his, his fellow musicians would say, like, yeah, man, he just disappeared for like three weeks. He was just gone. And then he's back. So I don't know. Like, it's kind of what he did. Well, he did this one time. He, he disappeared early, early on. And he came back. And when he came back, he could play. He could play. He was a great musician. And yes, he is one of the greatest, most influential blues musicians of all time. Now, do you know the legend? Some of you already know the legend. Some of you have heard about it. Didn't some musician sell his soul to the devil at the crossroads? Not that Ralph Macchio cheesy movie from the 80s. That was terrible. Don't watch Crossroads with Ralph Macchio. Pass on that. Um, But the story goes, and it is mythology, of course, it is mythology, that um, Robert Johnson, uh, out in Mississippi, in the country, went out to the crossroads at midnight and met the devil. The devil appeared to him as, uh, as a tall uh, African-American, right? So it looked similar. It looked like, you know, one of his people. And there's the devil talking to him. And the devil takes Johnson's guitar, and he tunes it, and he starts playing music, plays songs on it, the devil. He was probably good. Um, and then he gives it back to Johnson, and it is told that a deal was made. Uh, Johnson would sell his soul to the devil in exchange for becoming the greatest blues musician of all time. And that's why he was such a great blues musician. And, you know, some of this probably came from some of his lyrics. Uh, Read his lyrics. Some pretty dark, 
pretty dark songs about, uh, yeah, I won't even get into it, but he talks about him and the devil and then the bad things going on. So we, we all know like these kinds of stories, right? There's other stories like this. And we just kind of dismiss them because, oh, it's a story. It's like, you know, you, you can't sell your soul to the devil. Like, what's, what are we talking about here? It's just all kind of make-believe. It's fiction or it's, it's mythology. But you can, in fact, lose your soul. I mean, the Bible says so. You can forfeit. You can lose your soul. And that's what we're going to look at today. In fact, here's the principle that I want us to take away from the passage that we're going to look at here in Mark chapter 8. The principle is this. Your soul is immeasurably valuable. And it's easily lost. But Jesus can save it. Your soul is much more valuable, far more valuable than you can comprehend. But it can be forfeited without you even giving it much thought. But Jesus and Jesus alone can save it. So here's what we're going to do. For those of you that like organization, we're going to talk about the passage. Okay, so we're going to work our way through the passage, verses 34 through 38. Then we're going to consider the point to ponder here, what we're really getting at in this series where we are, are looking at Scripture's big questions that Scripture asks, that people in Scripture ask, that are universally relevant. So first, the passage. It starts in verse 34 where it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is Jesus speaking to the crowds, telling them what it means to be a follower, what we would say to be a Christian, right? Uh, To be a disciple of Jesus. This is what it is. What Jesus says here is at the heart of Christian faith and practice. To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, it's not the point of where we're going here, but we need to pay attention to this, right? To deny yourself, right? To deny yourself means to dethrone yourself. That's the best way that I can conceive of to explain that simply. To deny yourself is not to hate yourself to the uttermost. It's not to conceive of yourself as absolutely worthless and no good and just... You, should, you might as well give up and destroy yourself because you are nothing but a worm. That's not the sense of this at all. To deny yourself is to dethrone yourself. It's to take yourself off of the throne of rightful ruler. You are not the center of the universe. You are not even the center of your universe. Uh, and you are not in control. You are not in charge. To dethrone yourself or to deny yourself is, at least in part, to recognize the lordship of God and specifically the lordship of Christ. You deny yourself, and by denying yourself, you're not forgetting yourself. You're actually coming to understand yourself. You actually come to know yourself, right? You ever read people say, like, I'm really trying to find myself, right? That's not a bad endeavor. It's like people are like, oh, pff, I'm trying to, so lame, trying to find yourself. Read your Bible. But yeah, uh, I am, and that's how I'm going to find myself, by opening up the book, yo. Like, it's going to tell me who I am and what I am, so... Uh, that's what this is. To deny yourself is to really find yourself and to embrace your true identity, your proper identity. You are not the creator. You are a creature made by the creator, held accountable to him, made in his image and for his glory. To deny yourself means to dethrone yourself. It means to find who you really are and to embrace that identity. And of course, uh, at, at the heart of this is a call to repentance, Right, to deny yourself is, is to say, I'm going to deny or reject the sinful impulses and longings and temptations that are filling my heart and my life. I'm going to reject that. I'm going to turn away from sin, and I'm going to look towards Jesus, which is why he says, and follow me. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
This is a very simple way that Jesus um, summarizes believing in him, obeying him, right? It, it, follow me. Not everybody who followed Jesus followed Jesus, if you know what I mean. Like not everybody who was a true believer and followed Jesus in that sense. They believed in him. They believed him. They were obedient to his commands. Not everybody who followed Jesus like that followed Jesus locally from village to village or house to house. When Jesus was telling people, follow me, it wasn't simply an invitation to join the caravan. It was an invitation to join the kingdom. It was, I, I want you to be with me, not geographically, but spiritually. That's the idea. So here is the call, right? That's the call in verse 34. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's the heart of Christian faith and practice. Now, with this are implications, right, in verse 35. And he gets into this implication here, which is leading us into our question. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Whoever saves his life will lose it. Why would you not want to save your life? Your life is in danger. Are you going to try and get out of the danger? You ever been in a scary situation? Somebody's swinging like a wrench at you or something? You want to get out. You want to, you're going to save your life. You're going to run, right? What if you're sick, right? You want to get out of that situation. What, what, what could possibly be wrong with trying to save your life? In context here, the point that Jesus is making is that you can make every effort to save the totality of your life, to save yourself, and if your attempt is to save yourself, you will ultimately lose. If you try to save your life, you're, you're going to lose it. It's, it's, just, it does, it's not going to work the way that you think it's going to work. To, to save your life is an attempt to rescue your life, to redeem your life, to, to put it back together, right? Many attempt to do this. We all attempt to do this. Right, your, wife, your life gets out of whack, right? Your life is, is not working and it's, it's, maybe it's falling apart and so maybe you're addressing a health issue and maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I've let myself go, right? And I'm eating poorly and I'm not exercising except my mouth all the time and, uh, and I realize like, wow, you know what? I really need to rescue my physical health because it does matter, it is important and so I'm gonna save myself there. We think about it like that or maybe you're thinking about finances, maybe you've really done a number on yourself financially and you've messed up, like you've really messed up up and now you're in trouble and you work really hard and you put in the effort and you get help and you, you finally come out of that and you have saved your financial life, right? Maybe it's your physical life or your health. Maybe it's your financial life. There, this breaks down into a lot of different things. Like It could be that you're trying to save your relationships, right? Maybe you realize that you've done a real number on the most important people in your life and you've broken and fractured relationships. You've ended relationships that matter and that you want to have restored. And so you put in the work and the effort to mending the those fences and rebuilding those relationships. So maybe that's what people are trying to do when they're trying to save their lives. These are not bad things, right? These are good. We can all agree these are good things to do. They are, of course, good and important. Jesus' point is for all the good that we can do, for all the saving that we can do in this life, we cannot save our souls. You cannot save your soul. And that is the essence of your life. Here's the question. Verse 36 again. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to gain it all, to save yourself, right, in this world, to have all the things that are most important to you, to gain all of that, and then to forfeit your soul? Well, the question gives us the implied answer, right? It's pretty, what does it profit a man? The answer is nothing. It doesn't profit him. He gains no profit. He's gained the world, but he has no profit. You can gain, we can gain so much in this world. There is much to gain and to gather, to amass. You can gain it all and still lose what is most valuable. I mean, what good is it to have it all if all you have is in the end worthless? What good is it? It doesn't do any good. You can, Jesus says, gain the world, amass wealth or power or fame or comfort or personal satisfaction or whatever it is. You can amass it all and lose your soul. And so he issues this warning in verse 38. Jesus says, for Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I know we're moving quickly through this passage because we're, we're trying to get to the question. We want to spend some time in it after we do the passage here. Here's the thing. Jesus is, Jesus is pretty clear in his warning. Jesus puts the greatest value on himself. Jesus puts all of the value, the greatest value, on himself. Some people struggle with this, right? Some people struggle with, well, okay, so you're saying that God does all things for his own glory and pleasure? Yep. God does everything. Everything God does, he does first and foremost for his own glory and pleasure. And people sometimes say, like, that seems a little arrogant. That seems a little self-centered. Why is he so special? And the answer is because he's God. That's why. To whom else should the glory go? I mean, it's, he alone is worthy of all the glory. Once, once you understand it, it seems pretty clear, but until you understand it, it can be rather insulting. Jesus, listen, he puts all the value on himself, on, on knowing him, believing him, believing in him, obeying him. That's where the value is. So he says, listen, you're, if, if you're going to reject me, you're going to wind up rejected. And by the way, this is not Jesus like being harsh. This is not Jesus being uptight. Jesus is inviting everybody to be accepted. He's inviting everyone to be redeemed. He's offering to save everyone's soul. He says, come to me and I will give you the forgiveness of sins. You will enter into the kingdom. You will be reconciled to the Father. You will have it all if you will come to me. It's free for you. It costs me everything. It's free for you. So come. Come, and, it's, and we will gladly accept you. Even the angels will rejoice and sing over your coming into the kingdom. But if you reject me, then you'll be rejected. So this is the passage that we're looking at. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him to not try to save our lives in terms of rescuing the totality of who we are through our own efforts. He's not encouraging us to ignore our needs or to get ourselves or others out of trouble. That, those are good things to do. 
He's, guard, he's, he's warning us from losing our lives. And that's really what we want to start talking about here more specifically. But to even get into that, if we want to consider like points to ponder, we really have to take a little bit of time to consider what a soul is. Like what is a soul? Can you sell it to the devil? There are all kinds of people that wrestle with the idea. By the way, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, this was one of the central problems. He put together the pieces of various humans to create a, a, a monster of sorts and then reanimate it. Does it have a soul? Because if it doesn't have a soul, it's not human. It's just a, a creature. Right? The, the, the question about the soul is significant, even if many of us aren't thinking about it today. So what is the soul? We're going to keep this relatively simple. The soul is, in one sense, that immaterial part of you that makes you human, right? It is immaterial, right? It's not physical. You can't weigh it. Christians are always pushing these, like, theories, like these conspiracy They're like Christian conspiracy theories. Is it a, it's not a conspiracy theory, though. What would it be? They, uh, Christian myths. That's what they are, Christian myths. Like, well, there was a study done, and when, right before a person dies, they weigh them, and then when they die, they lose like a half an ounce. That's the soul. I'm like, okay, knock it off. That's just, stop doing that. That's not, even if there was a weight difference, that's not the soul leaving the body. The soul's immaterial. You can't measure it. Anyways, it's immaterial, but it's real. It is a part of who you are. Your soul is the thing that gives you the capacity to love, to love sacrificially, to love earnestly. It's that part of you that gives you the capacity for moral conviction, which we ignore to our own peril and then feel the pangs of conscience over because we have a soul. Your soul is what gives you the capacity for spiritual experiences. Your soul is what gives you the capacity to actually have a relationship with God. It doesn't automatically connect you to God relationally, and we'll see why, but it gives you the capacity to do that. It's why you can have a relationship with God as a human being, because you have a soul. Some theologians will say, like, well, your soul is, is it's like the seat of your emotions, intellect, and will. And that's true. That, that's fine. It's a, it's a good thing to say. It's the seat. It's where your intellect, right, your, your thinking, your emotions, or your affections, and your will, right, you're doing, it all is grounded in your soul. And this soul that every human being has bears the imprint of the divine nature, right? When you read Genesis 1 and 2, it says that he made man, he made them both male and female, in his image. And so we bear the image of God, and that is connected to the soul. It's why we're different from the rest of the animals. We are not mere mammals. We are human beings made in God's image, and we have, each of us, a soul. And that soul is immortal. It is why you will live on after death. Now, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. Hit the website if you want to look into that, where we talk about, is there life after, after death? Your body is buried, but your soul or your spirit continues. You're still conscious. You're still very present, and we wind up either where, in, in the presence of the Lord or away from his presence in outer darkness. 
So that's what a soul is, if we could be as, 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 as brief as possible. And, and this immaterial, true part of who you are, your soul should be valued, it should be prized, it should be protected because your soul is valuable, which means you are valuable, which means your life has value. By the way, this is why Christians are supposed to have a very strong, hard stance against prejudice and racism and against any abuse of any people at all because Everybody is made in the image of God, and every human being has value that is inestimable. It should be valued and protected because what's the implication here? That your soul is worth more than the world. That's the implication, right? What's, what's the gain if you, if, if you get the whole world? What's the profit? You gain the whole world but lose your soul. It's a loss because your soul is worth more than whatever you can accumulate in this life as good as those things might be. Spurgeon said it this way, the soul is a thing worth 10,000 worlds. In fact, a thing which worlds on worlds heats together like sand upon the seashore could not buy. It is more precious than if the ocean had each drop of itself turned into a golden globe for all that wealth could not buy one soul. See, sometimes, particularly among us Calvinists, right? That's not everybody here, but that's definitely me. Um, uh, There is is a tendency among some, especially younger, newer Calvinists who haven't really read much of Calvin, uh, to think like, oh, well, we're all sinners and we're totally depraved. Therefore, we're all scum and we're worth nothing. That is not the teaching of Scripture. You have inestimable value and worth because you are God's creation. You belong to him. This doesn't mean that you are worthy morally of God's grace or his salvation, but it means that you and all human beings have worth. It means your life, no matter how hard or painful or confusing, that your life, your existence has true meaning and value. Do not lose it by trying to gain the things that the world and only the world will give you and can give you. Your soul is precious, valuable, but it is easily lost. You can lose your soul. Now, you can't sell it. That's not a thing. Cool story. Cool story. I feel bad. Most influential blues musician, and everybody's talking about he sold his soul to the devil. I don't know. His lyrics are a little weird, though, I will say. Can't sell your soul, even if the devil appeared, which he can do. And he, he had you sign a contract in your own blood. Selling your soul to him, he can't take it. It's not, it's not a thing. He can't do that, right? God is in control and in charge, and ultimately, your soul belongs to God, really, if we want to be tactical here. So can you lose your soul? Well, you can't sell it. You can't trade it. It can't be stolen, but you, you can forfeit it. You can lose it. You know how you lose your soul, really? You lose your th- soul by throwing it away or allowing it to slip away by overvaluing the world and undervaluing God and by misunderstanding yourself, who you are and what you are. We will willingly throw away our soul that is our spirituality and our eternal existence. We will willingly toss it away 
for enough of the goods of the world. And when I say goods, I don't even mean illicit goods. I mean good goods. I mean the good things. Family, right? What we wouldn't do for family, for family and love or for... uh, or for, or, or, for, or for success and the ability to take care of yourself and other people, or knowledge, or wisdom. And then there are the things that are, you know, clearly more vain. You know, maybe the people are just hungry for power and they're, they're hungry for fame. And if, we're, if maybe you wouldn't throw it away, maybe you wouldn't throw away your soul, but you will let it drift away. You, will, you can forfeit it. You don't have to intentionally throw it in the can. You can just overvalue the world and see the world and everything that it can provide for you to be the greatest need of your being, that your redemption, your saving really exists in the worldly plane and not in the spiritual. And we do this. We, we do this especially when we undervalue the soul. Because if, if we don't have a soul, what are we? An animal. And animals are cool. Most of us don't think that animals are as important as humans. And if you're just an animal, then what's, what's the difference? What's, what's the point? And so maybe if you're just an animal, you realize that the best that I can do is, just, is have it good here for as long as I can. So you're... What are you, you, you're, you're saving your life, but you're actually, you're, when you're trying to save your life, you're actually giving it away, your true life. And here's the thing. It's not that like, well, there's some people out there that are losing their souls, and then there's a bunch of people that aren't. And the truth is, is, everyone is losing their souls. We are all letting them slip away naturally. This is our natural sinful state Right? Because the soul, like the rest of you, is corrupted with sin. Right? All have sinned. We are all sinners. And, and let me be clear here. The soul is the seat, right, of our intellect, emotions, and will. It's what gives us the capacity to be in a relationship with God. But the soul of sinners is also the seat of our sin and corruption. And it is what has broken our intended fellowship with the Lord. Listen, we, you don't, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner, and there is a difference, right? You, your sin stems from you, your being. It stems from your soul, not your society, not your culture, Culture has an influence. Society has an influence. But you're not a sinner because of where you grew up or what you've experienced. You are a sinner because of what's going on in your own heart. It's internal. And so since you are sinful and your soul is sinful, the inclination of every human being's heart naturally is not worship but wandering. It's not worshiping the triune God who made us. It is wandering away into our own ideas and ideologies, our own religions and philosophies. We're all all in danger of losing our souls. I mean, in one sense, you finally lose your soul in the end. That's when you've lost your soul. In the end, day of judgment, you stand before the Lord and you are judged for your sins 
and it is found that you have wasted your life. You may have gained the world, but you've lost your soul, and judgment awaits. How do we actually do it? What does it look like to, to lose your soul? How, I mean, okay, so we're saying that you're overvaluing the world and undervaluing God, but what does it mean? It means that you are trusting in something in this world to save you, to make you, to define you, to redeem you. A lot of people, they will trust in their own goodness or morality, right? You know the type. Maybe it's you. I don't know. You know the type. It's like... uh, that you're a good person, you're a morally good person, like relatively speaking, okay? Like people look at you and they admire you. You're a person of character and conviction and you do the right thing and you're known for doing the right thing. And maybe you're good enough to look at other people and go, I'm better than these people, right? And if you think of yourself as better than these people, it's pretty easy to elevate yourself and like realize like on some very subjective level that, wow, I have just saved my life by improving it to the place where I am the example of virtue, If you're trying to save your life through your own goodness and morality, if you're, trying to, if you're trusting in that to be the thing that defines you and makes you and saves you, then you are losing your soul. Some people trust in their accomplishments, right? They don't think that they're better than people. Like, they, 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 they're not morally anyways. They might say, like, no, I'm, I'm corrupt. I, I think bad things and do bad things. But they trust in their accomplishments, what they have been able to achieve or accumulate, Other people will will trust in in wealth or power or fame, things that the world can provide. How do we lose our souls? We lose our souls by trusting in the things that the world can give us, both good and bad. (laughs) You don't need to be afraid of the devil stealing your soul. You need to be afraid of yourself because you'll give it away. You'll let it drift. I'm more scary than the devil to myself. This is the risk. The good news is, is that Jesus saves souls. Jesus is the one that saves. Your soul is immeasurably valuable. This has implications for how you live, how you view other people, that it's easily lost, which should have implications for how you live and how you treat other people. But Jesus can save it, right? See, the, we need redemption. Everybody needs redemption, not just earthly. There is earthly, worldly redemption that is temporal and social and, 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 and communal. That's fine. We're talking about spiritual redemption, redemption of the soul, meaning we need forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. We need renewal. And this only comes from God and his grace. It's the only place to find it. You can't find it in the world. You can't create it on your own. Let me just give you a few passages. We're going to run through these quick. Psalm chapter 130, or Psalm 130, uh, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So God doesn't leave us in our sins. He's like, no, I'm going to redeem you. I can redeem you. I am the redeemer, right? So there's rescue, there's help. You don't need to try to save your life. You can't. I will save your life, your soul. Or we look at Ephesians 
chapter 1 to talk about redemption. Verse 7, in him, that's Jesus, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So not only do we have this picture that redemption equals the forgiveness of sins, we also see that in Jesus, our rescue includes a transplant, right, from the the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. We become citizens there from which we can never be expelled. We are forever secure in that kingdom where there is forgiveness and life and renewal and becoming and transformation. Our souls are renewed in that kingdom, in that salvation. One other, look at, uh, listen to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and, uh, and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. It's not that you were worth redeeming. Because God's redemptive work is grace. But redemption is costly. Because the soul is costly. Because you are the creature of God made in his image. And for Christ to redeem souls, for anyone to redeem souls, he would have to be God in the flesh, taking the place of the guilty in order to do it. Forgiveness, cleansing, restoration. This is the saving that we need of ourselves, of our souls. Now, this is why it matters. Because some people might think, like, I don't really, who cares? Okay? You're talking about my soul. I can't feel my soul. I can't see my soul. Apparently, I can't weigh it anymore. Like, there's nothing I can do with my soul. So what am I, why should I, why should I care? You should care because the soul is who you are. It's not that the body is not you. The body is very much a part of you. You are a person who has a body and a soul. Both matter. But you continue to exist while your body rots. But then there will come a day when there is a resurrection and your soul and your body will be rejoined to enjoy paradise forever with Christ and his people. But the soul is you. So the redemption of your soul is your redemption. The change of your soul is your change. You can be changed because of Christ saving souls. So what do we do? Um, We'll we'll keep it simple, okay? Uh, Let's let's look at at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The exhortation is to seek the kingdom of God first. It's one of the ways Jesus said it, to lay up treasures in heaven 
Or as Paul says it in Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things below, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The exhortation here is to, if we're going to break it down, recognize, prize, and protect your soul. It's worth protecting. Your body's worth protecting, right? Body's worth protecting. Wear helmets, right? You hopefully you have your kids wear helmets. We didn't do that because we're redneck. But hopefully your kids wear helmets. Why? Because you protect the brain. You protect the kid, right? You want them to live long. You want them to be healthy and happy. Protect the soul. So you have to recognize, protect, and value the soul by finding its redemption in Jesus. That's how you ultimately do it. You can't save your soul. Jesus can. But this also means that you have to recognize the value of the world because it does have value. It just doesn't have ultimate value. So much of what we have in this world is a gift from God. The world itself is God's creation. There is much to enjoy and to be good stewards of. But if you live for it, you are neglecting yourself, your actual life. Understanding that your soul is truly valuable because it is God's creation. You are made in his image. Understanding that should have significant impact on how you think about yourself and what choices you make in life. If you understand that your soul is immeasurably value and yet easily lost, it should move you to look to the only one who can actually save it and preserve it to the end. So let's look to him together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. Truth. We pray, God, that you would, um, that you would teach us beyond what we're able to conceive of here uh, in our short time together. We pray, God, that you would encourage us. If, if people are convicted and overwhelmed with guilt, Lord, I pray that you would relieve that burden and give them the joy of salvation, the assurance of salvation. I pray, Lord, if we're convicted because we, we have been wasting much of our lives and overly been overly focused on the world, Lord, I, I pray that, that that conviction would give way to repentance that gives way to joy as we begin to walk in your ways more faithfully and fully. But Lord, in all these things, we're, we're, we're simply praying that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.